The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. I want to report a double murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park, you will find the kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are on part two of our three-part series about the Zodiac Killer. My name is Katie Givens, and I'm not a lawyer. My name is Scott Wright, and I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. So, uh, you mentioned earlier that we have some shout-outs that you would like to get to today before we get this episode started, correct? Correct. All right. right. I would like to give a shout-out to Ethan Laney. Thank you so much for the five-star review. Yes, always. And for the wonderful words he was texting with me. Um, Love it. Thank you. And he was was saying how he thinks that we're actual experts now. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Good one. uh, Thank you so much, Ethan. I appreciate you listening. And thank you for the wonderful feedback. And uh, keep giving that to us. We love that. Yeah, everybody out there, feel free to get involved in what Ethan did, and give us that five-star review. Yes. Okay, yes. Every, I thought you were about to say everyone give us feedback. I mean, we don't no, 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 no. Just yeah, <laughs> stop with the five. That's all the feedback we need. Just five-star review, and we can take it from there. <laughs> Obviously, according to him, we already have. Well, you have to uh, comment on the five stars, or we don't know that you've given us five stars. Or if uh, you know one of us personally, you can let us know you okay. gave us five stars, right. and we'll give you a shout-out. And now I asked you guys, we got together a few minutes before the show started and we talked about whether or not anyone has solved our original cryptogram that we have shared on our various social media pages, but you guys tell me that no one has. If they have, they haven't sent it in to us. Well, I spoke to Caitlin Jolly Gossett over the weekend and she said that she is already working on it. Of course, we know that she's one of our big fans. She's been on the show before with her, yes. with her dad, Bo Jolly. Uh-huh. Um, and so she said she's already working on it. So guys, if you're out there working on it and you haven't solved it yet, there will be a clue in this episode. So Scott, how do you get to the cryptogram? Uh, you I can, just wanted to look you, at Sure. It. You can go to our Twitter account. You can go to our Facebook page and I will share it again uh, tomorrow. That's Tuesday. And folks who are listening now, won't, that'll be a day ahead of when they can see it because they won't hear me say that until Wednesday. <laughs> and I'm going to share it on Tuesday. <laughs> So it will be there when you hear this and you get another chance to solve it and there will be a clue that will be included. There will be a key to this cryptogram. Okay. On Wednesday. All right. And the first person to, uh, well, Katie will tell us later what the first person to solve this via email gets uh, Mm -hmm. for their reward. And you email us at truecrimeoneasystreet at gmail.com. That is correct. Mm -hmm. And I have a shout out too before we get this show started. Uh, My coworker, Denny Peak is a, an avid listener of the show. I think I've probably mentioned her son, Luke, before, who also listens. But Denny told me uh, last week that she thinks that our new Anchor ad is amazing. Oh, So I've never had anybody compliment me on a commercial before. Mm. And I phantom to guess that you guys haven't either. But now we've all been complimented on our commercial expertise. That's wonderful. And hey, guys out there, listeners... Your commercial can be on our podcast too. If mm-hmm. you want to. We yeah. would love more ads. Uh huh. So email us at truecrimeoneasystreet at gmail.com about being a sponsor and we will promote your business 
or just you. Yeah. I mean, if you just want to buy an ad for yourself. We like the kind of money that jingles, but we prefer the kind that folds. Well, and we'll just we'll just promote you, your business yeah. or or just, you know, whatever you if the price is right. <laughs> and we're still working on a rate sheet, so we'll get back to you on that. Um, are we ready to get started? I think, I think so. so. All right. So uh, last week, Kelly, in part one, we got the ball rolling with the whole Zodiac thing. And this is a 101 level Zodiac thing that we're doing here. Uh, so we began uh, where this all began, which was in 1968. We gave some examples of the turmoil that was going on in the country and, and the, the world, really, uh, what everybody was experiencing in 1968 uh, at that time in American history. We tell the stories of two brutal shootings in Solano County, California, and the first took place on Lake Herman Road, December of 1968, and that left two teenagers dead. They were Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday. The second attack took place just five miles down the road at Blue Rock Springs Park inside the municipal limits of the city of Vallejo seven months later on July the 4th, 1969. We ended part one last week with the details of that second shooting, which left 22-year-old Darlene Farron dying in the driver's seat of her Chevy Corvair and her 19-year-old friend Mike McGough critically wounded and bleeding on the ground outside. We also started off today's episode with a recreation of that phone call, and you heard that in episode one, that was placed to the local police within an hour of that crime. And thanks, by the way, for the uh, voice of the Zodiac. That's our good friend, Henry Johnson. He volunteered to do that, did it all on his own, and the promise of one damned beer, and I haven't paid him that yet, but Henry, if you're out there listening, I don't think Henry has the internet. Uh, and he certainly <laughs> doesn't have a smartphone, so he may not hear me say this until I tell him in person, but we will get you a beer uh, on us for your service. Henry's grandson listens because I know he got our first round of merch. Oh, okay. Sorry, I don't remember. I don't know if he told me his name. Well, tell Grandpa Henry that we owe him a beer. And if you're out there, you can get a second round of merch. $20 a t-shirt. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Email us at truecrimeoneasystreet at (laughs) gmail.com. So the call Henry acted out for us was the one that first tipped off law enforcement officials in Solano County that they were dealing with a serial killer in their community or... As one Vallejo officer declared to a TV reporter in the days after the call was received at police headquarters, there's a crazy man on the loose. And depending on who you ask, there was plenty of craziness going around in Northern California in 1968 and 69. Uh, Drugs, prostitution, both flourished, uh, flourished. And San Francisco, the city was very tolerant of strip clubs, peep shows, novelty stores, anything nefarious. You could find it in San Francisco. And it actually became the uh, really the, the epicenter of the pornography industry in California in, the, in that time. Uh, in addition, the people of San Francisco were always being subjected to scandals, stories that made the news. I mean, the Summer of Love was right down the street in Haight-Ashbury uh, in 67. So a lot of uh, untoward happenings in San Francisco at the time. A lot of craziness. There was a lot of craziness, but I mean, I, I guess we can all agree that the Zodiac was the craziest of all. Agreed. <laughs> uh, I mean, the guy came up with the name Zodiac all on his own, which seems like a clue to how his mind was working at the time. Unlike most serial murderers, uh, he wanted attention and he sought it from these letters and codes. He wanted them to appear in the Bay Area newspapers, cryptograms, taunts, threats. Uh, he basically poked fun at the police. I mean, but not to mention the senseless, seemingly random murders of young couples late at night in isolated areas and the eventual claim of a body count that reached into the dozens. Perhaps up to like 
37. So before we get started, uh, Kelly suggested something last week that I thought was a terrific idea, and I think Katie agreed with me. Since we can't afford to pay the royalties for all of these awesome songs that were flowing over the airwaves in the late 1960s, we have compiled a supplemental song list in case any of you want to have this music playing underneath as you listen at home, and Katie's going to walk us through that. And the reason we can't afford that is because we need more sponsors. Yeah, so like uh, you said, if you want yeah, to what sponsor, Kelly said earlier. <laughs> if you want to sponsor, just email us at truecrimeoneasystreet <laughs> at gmail.com. Now or everybody remembers whether they want to or not. Everyone uh-huh. tell 10 friends about this podcast. <laughs> yep. Come follow us on social media and we can maybe get some sponsors outside. But anyway, here's the song list straight from the summer of 69. And you know. Summer of 69 is not on this. This song comes way later. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Correct. Honky Tonk Women by the Rolling Stones. Sugar Sugar by the Archies. Suspicious Minds by none other than Elvis Presley. Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan. Creepy. Mm. <laughs> yes. And Get Back by the Beatles. Yes. Uh, the Hurdy Gurdy Man, I, I don't know why that song is so creepy. But it is. It is. So it's awesome to just go ahead and turn that one on on low in the background while you listen yeah, to the rest of this When podcast. you texted me that yesterday, it reminded me that I read something about, and we'll talk about it next week, but David Fincher, who directed the 2007 film Zodiac, as soon as he got greenlit from the studio, he, wanted, he knew he wanted to use that song in the film. And it is creepy AF. You'll, if you haven't seen it yet, you will. Uh, hopefully, and you'll know why we're talking about this song the way we're talking about it. Exactly. So we ended last week's episode with Scott telling us about the shooting at Blue Rock Springs Park. When the crime occurred, no one in law enforcement circles was yet thinking the crime had anything to do with another that took place the previous December on Lake Herman Road, also in Solano County, about five miles away. And so we fast forward to three weeks after that Blue Rock Springs Park shooting. And on July the 31st, 1969, 11 days after Apollo 11 landed on the moon, just to put you in the right place for when this happened, uh, envelopes were mailed from San Francisco to three Bay Area newspapers. They all included excessive amounts of postage, which was something that the Zodiac came to be known for. And they they all had a handwritten note on the outside that said, please rush to the editor. Uh, So briefly, there was an instructional portion of these uh, letters, and then there was a cryptogram in each of these letters. But the instructional portion of the letters explained that if the enclosed cryptogram was not printed in the three papers, there would be serious consequences for that. And once more, to go over a little bit of that is our good friend Henry Johnson with a little bit of some audio about those instructions and what they said. Here is part of a cipher. The other two parts of this cipher are being mailed to the editors of the Vallejo Times and San Francisco Examiner. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Friday, 1st of August, 69, I will go on a kill rampage Friday night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. So the first thing the editors and publishers at the Vallejo Times Herald, San Francisco Examiner, and San Francisco Chronicle have to contemplate is whether or not to do what this person is asking. Do they print the cryptograms in their papers? And if they don't, he kills someone, is it their fault? Fairly quickly, they all decide to call their local police department, but they also decide to print the cryptograms. 
So, and Katie's going to tell us a lot more next time about what a cryptogram is or a cipher, if you prefer. They're kind of interchangeable expressions as far as the Zodiac Killer goes. But basically, it's a coded message where one letter or symbol is used in place of the actual intended letter. They can be created from anywhere from ridiculously simple to insanely complicated. It just depends on what method you use to, to write it. For example, and here's the clue we were telling you guys about, an empty square could be used in place of the letter L. Visit us on social media, True Crime on Easy Street. We're on everything, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Go look at that cryptogram and um, look at the symbols. It contains a special message just for our listeners, and we gave you the only clue you're going to get. So if you want to try and solve it, go now. Like Scott said, an empty square could be used in the place of a letter L. And the first correct solution email to truecrimeoneasystreet at gmail.com, as Kelly has mentioned. Several times. Wins a prize. And of course, that prize is a true crime on easy street. Yeah, that's all the merch we have (laughs) so far. But they look great. You'll be happy that you got it. No, yes. So all three papers printed the cryptogram. And within a few days, a teacher and his wife, Don and Betty Harden, outworked the U.S. Navy codebreakers at Skaggs Island Naval Intelligence Center and came up with the solution. With all three parts placed in the correct order, the coded message read, in part, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest. All right, so that's enough about ciphers and cryptograms and coded messages until next week. So there's a little teaser. So for now, let's talk about the next Zodiac attack, which took place in the early fall of 1969, less than two months after Darlene and Mike were shot at Blue Rock Springs Park on the 4th of July. Okay, so we're at September 27th, 1969. And we are at Lake Berryessa, which is in North California. It's right north of Napa. Which, I mean, it's literally, it is a beautiful part of the country. Like You've I, been in that area, right? I have. And I remember when we went, we were like, this this doesn't feel like California for one. It didn't feel like the U.S. It felt like kind of like you were might have been in Ireland. That was their honeymoon, and that was a year ago on the 11th, and probably a year ago today, you were in this area. Five years ago. I'm sorry, five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it was a year, well, no, a year ago. (laughs) Probably not much fun. I don't think you would have been able to go a year ago. Mm. Yeah. So, college students and friends, Brian Hartnell, who was 20 years old at the time, and Cecilia Shepard, 22, they were hanging out along the shore of the lake. They kind of had like a picnic situation. They were laying by the shore and they're kind of looking around and, you know, they're not paying much attention to anybody but themselves. They're just, like I said, picnicking, hanging out. And Cecilia notices that a man's kind of lingering in the shadows of the trees. She sees him. He's he's pretty far away, so she's not paying that much attention. I mean, they're in a public place. This la- This lake area... Uh, people boat there, they fish, they picnic. I mean, people hang out. It's home to the famous Barry Essabal, which was like a music venue that fe- featured a lot of popular bands at the time. So this is not like a secluded area they're at. So she sees him, he's kind of far away. But it piques her interest and she notices over the course of a little while, he keeps getting closer. He keeps getting closer. Uh, And then suddenly he appears really close to him. He's wearing a hooded costume that has white crossed circles stitched onto the front, which if you know anything about the Zodiac, it's that simple. Yeah. It it becomes 
his thing. And the assailant holds them at gunpoint and he explains that he's going to rob them and then he's going to leave. He claims to them that he has a, he's an escaped convict from the Deer Lodge in Montana and said that he just killed a prison guard and he has stolen a car. He requests from Brian. He He's like, hey, give me your car keys. Give me all the money you've got. And Brian's like, here, here, take, take, take whatever you need. Hands everything over he's got. The assailant then binds them both up or has them bind each other with clothesline. And they think, ah, oh, this, this is it. He's just going to tie us up. It's, we're going to get out of here. We're going to get out of here unharmed. Like I said, he's come with a gun. He's, he's held them at gunpoint. He's robbed them. And they think, God, he just, he just needs some money in a car to get further down the road. The next thing they know, he comes at them with a foot-long knife. And he stabs them both. He stabs, looks like he stabs Brian about six times. I've seen some accounts that say eight times, but I think probably six. And he stabs Cecilia ten times. And then he just leaves. As, as the assailant is leaving, he uses a black marker to draw that large cross circle, like I said, was stitched onto the front of his garb he was wearing. He stitches that. He, he marks that on the front door of Brian's car. And then he goes to a payphone a few blocks away, and he places a phone call to the Napa County Police Department, and he says, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Uh, and then the police says, ask them, him to provide his location. Like, well, where are you? And he kind of gets faint and draws back from the phone, but he says, I'm the one who did it. There's a man and his son in a boat nearby fishing in like a cove area and they hear screams. And so, you know, they rush to see what's going on and they discover the bodies. And they go to summon help by contacting local park rangers. And also Brian has kind of crawled his way to try to contact some park rangers as well. Um, Cecilia was conscious when law enforcement arrived after the park rangers got in touch with law enforcement. And she was able to provide a detailed description of the attacker. Soon after that, as she's placed into an ambulance, she lapses into a coma and she never regains consciousness. After a two-day battle for her life, Cecilia dies on September 29th, 1969. But Brian does survive this terrible attack. He's able to talk to reporters. He's able to give more details on what happened. So all of our account comes firsthand from Brian and Cecilia for the terrible things they endured. But that's really all we know. Like I said, he was hooded. He was masked. But they, there was some hair she saw, like, in like kind of the eye holes of the mask. So this, and they knew it was like a Yeah, white if you've never man. seen what that mask and that outfit that he was wearing looks like, uh, jump on the internet and just Google uh, Zodiac Lake Berryessa, B-E-R-R-Y-E-S-S-A. And that's the first thing that's going to pop up. And it is, it is a, it would have to be a frightening thing to be sitting around in what you think is a, uh, a secluded area. And you look behind a tree, like Katie said, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden this guy's coming at you and he's got a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. Right. And, and there's nobody who can help you at that point. No. and the only evidence they ever find is he leaves a boot print out there. Yes. I mean, it's his handwriting on the side of that car door. And one of the things that we'll talk a lot about next week is just how valuable 
his handwriting analysis was. I mean, they didn't have DNA back then. There was no cell phones. A lot of the reasons where they determined whether or not somebody was the Zodiac or not was based on one person who worked for the state of California and whether or not he thought that that handwriting matched the person who they could confirm from the letters that had been sent to the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, that boot print was, was a, another very rare piece of evidence at the time. Right. They were, they were getting what they could. Yeah. And this couple, this is a little bit unique because this is not at night. This is in yeah. This was like the six, middle of the day, six o'clock in the afternoon. It, yeah. Oh, and so, but was it was still daylight. It, no, no, but no, it, it was, was daylight. But it was still daylight. Yes, because yeah. daylight savings hadn't happened yet or anything. So I mean, we're like I said, it's September twenty seventh, but it is like afternoon. Okay, yeah, it's late in the afternoon. and it's, it's headed it's, towards it's, dark, but it's, it's still daylight. But it's six o'clock in California too. You know, like yeah, that's and, different than six o'clock here in it, September. It is it's still daylight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all right. So that's that. That gets us through. The third uh, Zodiac attack yes. that we can confirm. Because again, the writing on the door, Sherwood Morrill says, and we'll get into Sherwood Morrill next week, or is it Sherrod? Anyway, the guy who d- determines that, mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, it's the same guy. So we jump forward two weeks in time. And all these, so far we've got three different murders, three different attacks that have taken place in three different jurisdictions. We've got Solano County. We've got Vallejo, and now we've got Napa County. And here comes downtown San Francisco. This is going to be our fourth jurisdiction in four attacks. So on the night, another Saturday night, uh, October the 11th, 1969, a 29-year-old PhD English student named Paul Lee Stein is driving driving a cab for the Yellow Cab Company, um, and he picks up a ride in the theater district in San Francisco. Three and a half miles later, he stops to let out his fare. And there is a group of teenagers in a house across the street who sees a commotion outside of their window. And they get to looking and they get to watching what's happening. And they can see someone in the front passenger seat of cab number 912 physically assaulting, they think, the cab driver. So they hop onto the phone and call 911. And the police come running. Uh, and they're there. This is at 955 by 958. Police are on the scene at this at the corner of Washington and Maple. I'm sorry, at the corner of Washington and Cherry Streets in Presidio Heights, which is a very upscale area in San Francisco. I have read. So when the police get there, they find. Mr. Stein has been shot once in the back of the head and he's dead laid across the bench seat of his cab. Uh, with his head kind of over in the passenger side uh, footwell, and he's dead. He's he's been killed by one gunshot wound to the back of the head. Uh, the first police officer on the scene sees the kids walking out of their house and stops them from getting anywhere near the crime scene. Takes them back to the vestibule at their house, which is right there on the corner, and they end up getting a description from these three children. And it's a very basic general description, but it also generates the sketch artist or the sketch by the artist that is so famous to everyone who knows anything about the Zodiac today. It's those two side-by-side sketches of a, um, of a white male with a crew cut and horn rim glasses. Mm-hmm. They are the ones who provide the first ever reasonably accurate, we think maybe, description of what the Zodiac killer looked like. Now, the first thing that goes wrong when the San Francisco Police Department gets involved, SFPD for the rest of this, 
when the call goes out, when the 911 call comes in, the radio dispatcher sends out to all of the patrol cars in the area that it is a black male suspect. Oh. So when the first, when the second police car, the second patrol car on the scene arrives at the corner of Washington and Cherry Streets, they tell the first officer there that they're speaking with, oh, we just saw some white guy walking down the street about two blocks away, but the radio said black suspect. And so that officer says, no, 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 I just talked to these teenagers. That may have been the guy. Go back and look for him. Well, they don't find him, long story short, or we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Was there an explanation why? There was never any explanation. I've seen documentaries where the police officers themselves that were involved in this were were asked. Nobody knows why that was a screw up. Was it just racial bias? Probably. Uh, at the time, uh, or maybe not. Maybe somebody just wrote something down wrong, or maybe someone misheard something. We will never know. Okay. But in the three or four minutes when the APB was for a black male adult, this white male adult walked right by the police officers and took a right, uh, I'm sorry, took a left onto Maple Street after he went a block and a half and headed north into the Presidio, which is a 1,500 acre. Uh, Now it's a formal army base. Back then it was an active army base, but it's 1,500 acres. It's easy to get lost in there amongst all the trees and the buildings, and that's what happened that night. And I will forever believe that that was him. Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, Dave Toski, who is the San Francisco police detective who was in charge of this case, also thinks that he got away that night. Uh, But anyway, what happens is, finally we've got, we think, a, a major city's police murder homicide investigative unit involved in this case. We've got Dave Toski and we've got Bill Armstrong, and I'm not going to get into a lot about them, but they're just two of the best detectives in San Francisco for the SFPD at the time. And they are used to working cases like this are from a big area. They deal with this all the time. Yes. And that's one of the things that actually hindered their investigation in the first couple of days, because their first assumption is this is just another cab driver who's been robbed because apparently that happened from time to time in those days in San Francisco, they have no idea who they're dealing with yet. Well, I think San Francisco's always had a certain level of crime. Yeah, to this day, I'm sure. So it wasn't so un- uncommon for a cabbie to get killed for whatever money he had in his pocket, whatever affairs he'd accumulated so far. It, there were a couple of oddities about uh, the crime scene. The, the blood on Paul Stein's shirt seemed like it flowed for a long time, like he was sitting upright after he was shot, and it flowed horizontally straight down his shirt. Mm -hmm. But when they found him, he's laid over in the passenger side. Nobody can figure out why exactly the kids are describing this, this perpetrator who has gotten out of the back of the car, climbed into the passenger side of the front of the car and is for some reason fidgeting. They speculate that maybe he was trying to rob him, but Armstrong in the movie Zodiac says he wouldn't have to do that. He could just reach over. Yeah. So that's confusing. Stein's wallet is missing. The car keys are missing. So just a lot, of, a lot of things that didn't seem necessary at the time. Do you know if there was blood spatter on the windshield? Everywhere. It was everywhere. It was all over the inside of the car. So I, I have always thought that he was sitting in the back, he shot him, and then he gets out, and then he's, what the kids are seeing is him actually arranging, because now you've got this man who's completely dead weight. Yes. He's, he's deceased. And he's dead weight, and he's fidgeting, trying to stage him and laying him over. That's, and I think that would explain the, the blood running down the shirt. Yeah. He's staging the crime, and then, as you said, the, 
the car keys in the wallet are missing. Well, are they trophies for a, a serial killer wants to have a trophy Possibly, somewhere? Or maybe he's afraid that he touched them mm-hmm. and he's taking evidence or I don't know his fingerprints. I don't think it would be fingerprints since they would be all over the place. So he's probably wearing gloves. So. There, there were some gloves involved. They never really determined if those gloves, I think actually later they all later on, they determined that those were not his gloves, okay. but it turns out there's a really good reason why he got out of the back of the car and got into the front of the car because that doesn't make any sense. Well, we found out why it makes sense about three days later when a letter arrives at the San Francisco Chronicle and that letter begins with these few sentences. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here's a bloodstained piece of his shirt. I'm the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. So when the, so when the Zodiac writes that letter, the reason that he says Washington and Maple instead of Washington and Cherry is because that's where he originally asked Paul Stein to take him. And nobody knows why they ended up one block further down Washington Street than he intended. Maybe somebody saw a neighbor. Maybe he saw a neighbor walking his dog and didn't want an, a witness. But anyway, they ended up one block further down. And that's why there's confusion about Washington Maple versus Washington Cherry. By the North Bay area, the Zodiac means the stabbings in late September at Lake Berryessa that Katie told us about. The letter goes on to poke fun at the police for the way they searched for him up and down the streets in Presidio Heights in the minutes after Paul Stein was shot. Also in the letter, the Zodiac threatened to shoot out the tires on a school bus and, quote, pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out, end quote. So now the Zodiac Killer has graduated from a small-time killer of teenagers in remote areas to a serious, deadly threat that has everyone in San Francisco and all around the Bay Area practically terrified. And that was his exact intention with the letters to the newspaper and the bloody shirt and the threats to school children. He's back in the news again, and that attention is a big part of the thrill for him. So now the Zodiac has everyone's attention and he does his best to try to keep it. A month later on November 8th, the Zodiac sends a follow-up letter to the Chronicle. It contains another piece of Stein's bloody shirt, a greeting card for reporter Paul Avery, who is played by Robert Downey Jr. in the movie that we'll discuss later. He's so good in it. He's good in everything. Yeah, true. And the most famous cryptogram of all time, known as the Z340 because it contains 340 characters. And why is it so famous? Well, because it's remained unsolved from 1969 until December 2020. So as promised, next time in part three, and if you can't tell, we're winding down now, uh, Katie's going to tell us all about the Z340 and who solved it and how they solved it. Kelly's going to tell us about the behavioral aspects of the Zodiac Killer and his motivations, not just for the killings, but also the threats and the victim's trophies and the attention-seeking letters and the cryptograms. And I'm going to talk a little bit about David Fincher's 2007 film titled Zodiac. And I'm also going to work in a uh, plug for the Batman, which is in theaters now and has a tie-in to the Zodiac case. I'll explain it next week. And there's a few other cinematic attempts through the years to take uh, the case of the Zodiac killer and use it to entertain the masses. We'll talk about that next week. We're also going to talk about some of the lead suspects in this case. Don't forget, this still remains unsolved. So that's all this week. We will see you next week when we round it out 
with part three of our trilogy. Also, we promise that Scott is not sponsored by the new Batman movie. Follow us on social media or anything. I've only seen it twice already. He just loves it that much. Also, I want to go ahead and say that while you're listening to this, this drops on March 16th. We've got a couple of birthdays coming up. Kelly's birthday is St. Patrick's Day, That's March right. 17th. What? Mm-hmm. And Scott's birthday is Sunday, March 20th. So 49 again. Two <laughs> birthdays coming up. Y'all go on our social medias, wish them happy birthday. And oh, come see us tonight. We have a live show. And, tonight on and Easy you've got Street. something awesome cooked up for the live show that we're going to do. It's it's St. Patrick's Day related. I don't want to spoil anything. That's all I'm going to say. But come mm-hmm. out and see us tonight at uh, 7.30 live on stage at Easy Street. And if you ask me nicely, you might can have um, some St. Patrick's Day drinks early. Ooh. Oh, I'll be there early. Oh, me too. <laughs> That's all you had to say. <laughs> um, is that it, guys? Are we done for another fantastic episode of True Crime on Easy Street? That's it. Good night, everybody.